0: Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So Matthew 18, 21 through 35 is where we are. And uh, this is a passage you may have seen, um, pretty famous. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked. And and this, by the way, this does come after uh, Jesus talked about um, if you have something against someone, you go to them, you try to resolve it. So maybe this is connected to that. Maybe it's not. But this is the question that Peter asks. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, question mark. Now, it's interesting that someone specifically comes to ask. It does make you feel like perhaps this is not an abstract theological question. Perhaps Peter has an issue with somebody and, he's, and it keeps happening over and over and he's coming to Jesus to say, what's the right thing to do? But to give Peter credit... He isn't, I don't think he's looking for a loophole. I don't think he's actually trying to find out when he can be done forgiving, because when he says up to seven times, most uh, commentators understand that to mean that Peter is basically saying, should I just always forgive? Because seven is the number that often for the Hebrews reflected completion. Um, They talk about seven as being kind of the, they talk about the sevenfold spirits of God at one point. And again, most people understand that simply to mean they're talking about the perfection of God. And so he says, should I give up to se- forgive up to seven times? So maybe it's the other way around. Maybe there's someone who has something against Peter and Peter's like, this person should keep forgiving me. I don't know what what the end result is, but he is he's giving a high number. He's saying basically forever, always. And but Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. He's not literally giving him a number and saying on the 78th time you don't have to forgive. He's taking Peter's very large idea that you should forgive always and actually multiplying that by 10 and saying there's never, essentially, there's never a point at which you are given freedom to stop forgiving, Um, which is a big, it's a huge statement, big challenge. And then Jesus tells this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. So this is a fascinating story, even before we get any further, just to really see what's happening here. First of all, the idea that the 10,000 bags is huge. That's, or is that what it says? Sure does. 10,000 bags of gold that's astronomically huge that's just a crazy amount it doesn't say bags of 10,000 pieces of gold it says 10,000 bags of gold that's a lot of money so he's he owes this incredibly mammoth amount he can't pay it apparently he's not he doesn't even appear at this moment he does later but right here at this moment he just can't pay so the master orders that he and his wife and his children be sold to repay the debt and whatever we think about that and i think it's not a great uh, approach it's not an unusual approach in Jesus's time that you would have indentured servitude you would have people that would labor and basically their their wages were all garnished they would get just enough to survive they would get food they would have uh, minimal housing but their everything else is indentured they don't own their own land you know they don't own uh, anything at all and until the debt is paid off And you can imagine for 10,000 bags of gold, this would have been a generational debt. This guy would have died and his kids would have owed it. And who knows if they would have been able to pay it off in their lifetime. So it's a big deal. Um, But then notice what happens. He begs for more time. He's like, just give me more time. Be patient. I will find a way to do it. And the master doesn't simply say, all right, that's fine. Take your time. I'll take it. The master just cancels the debt. And I think part of the point here is the master realizes this is an unpayable debt. right? This story is set up in such a way that it's hard to imagine that the guy's ever going to be able to repay it, even though he says he will. Um, And so the master is very generous. He just says, you know what, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay part of it. You don't have to pay a little bit of it. We'll just cancel the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. So again, this is a story. It's a parable. So it's a story of extremes. Here, this guy has been forgiven. He's essentially 10,000 bags of gold richer than he was moments ago because that debt has been canceled. Whatever payments he was making on that, he no longer has to make. And the first thing he does with his newfound freedom is go find someone who owes him significantly less, like just a tiny pittance of the percentage of what he owed the master. And when that guy says exactly the same thing, just give me a little time, he doesn't forgive his debt. He doesn't even give him more time. He's just completely, un. Uh, there's no mercy at all. And he's allowed to do this because the debt is real. But he throws the guy in jail and you can't even argue that he's doing it because he's trying to pay the master back because that's been canceled that debt's been canceled so it's clearly a story of extremes as you're listening to it your reaction is exactly what the apostle's reaction would be it's that's so ridiculous what is wrong with this guy why on earth would he do that it's it's a we should all have a sense of outrage which is which which probably is connected to a sense of we would never be so ridiculous and unreasonable Um, and so this is what happened says, then the master called the servant in you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you. And that question is for us, the listeners that that, this guy's not going to, it doesn't matter what he says. It's too late, but we hear that. And we're like, yes, he should have. Obviously it's very easy to see. He should have in anger. His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Okay. Don't worry about the fact that being tortured doesn't actually make you able to pay anything back. Um, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is obviously, the point is obvious. This is one of the more obvious parables, right? The point is Peter asked, how often should I forgive people? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There's this guy who owed an astronomical amount of money, and the master forgave him. And that guy went out and just told everyone else to pittance. And that's ridiculous. We all think of that sermon as wicked. We all see that that is so dumb that it, that it is wicked, that it's just evil. He just lost all sense of perspective to such a degree that it's a moral issue. And, and he's just cruel. And he's not kind, and he's not merciful like the master was. And before Jesus even says anything else, I think the point is clear to Peter and to everybody else hearing, that before God we all owe ten thousand bags of gold. Before God, our sins are so many and so numerous that that it's that it's ridiculous to then go out to somebody who has committed an offense against us however great it feels to us and and may be in the scheme of the world even in comparison to other people it may be a big offense but how ridiculous it is, is to look at that one offense and and want to throw that person in jail want to imprison them and not let the not cancel that debt when the father when god has canceled all of our debts when he's willing to forgive us all our sins. And even without the completion of the gospel, even without Jesus having died and come back to life and the clarity of the grace of God, the idea that God forgives sins is something that comes up all the time in the Old Testament, right? Even if it's through the atonement of the sacrifices they're making, but even just the Psalms and the prophets, this idea that God forgives, that God doesn't remember sins, it is something we see frequently iterated. So it's not a new idea to the Hebrews. So I think it's clear to them that's what this story is about that it's ridiculous that God has forgiven us so much every day forgives us for new debt that we accumulate and that we refuse to forgive people who have offended us and 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 so that's the answer to Peter's question at at, at the point that your debt is completely clear and God no longer has to forgive you maybe you'd have something but that just never happens that just isn't the case and and there's something wrong with you If you don't want to, there's something wrong with your perspective. There's something you're not getting about God and your relationship if you're unwilling to forgive other people, to even move that direction. When you add to the fact that all sin, every offense that's done against you is also done against God, you'll see that God's account is always bigger than ours because all sins are against Him, even when they also offend us. And He's forgiven us for the ones we've committed against other people. Likewise, they should forgive us, we should forgive them. So the answer is yes, you should forgive. That's the clear point of the parable. I want to make sure we understand that because he goes on to say some things which which understandably are a challenge to us. And I don't know that I can explain exactly why Jesus says things the way he does, but we can talk about with clarity what he doesn't mean um, and, and kind of try to approximate what he is saying here. But I think in it all, we just need to remember that the main point is obvious. As people hear this parable, nobody's confused. Everybody understands God has forgiven us a bunch Therefore, it's unreasonable for us to not forgive our brothers and our sisters when they sin against us over and over. And this is what he goes on to say. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Okay, so the problem is, what does that mean? If we don't forgive our brothers and sisters, does that mean that God will not forgive us? Does that mean that the grace of the gospel is no longer open to us? Well, the first thing I'll point out is again, this is this is before the grace of the gospel has been made clear. So maybe this is something that we can see sort of under the the auspices of the law, right? That that there's this this bargain. The the law is this contract that God has with the Israelites, which was all leading to the gospel. And maybe this is like that. That under sort of the covenant, as they currently understand it, before the gospel is unveiled in all its glory. You know, it could be seen that one of the part of the covenant with God is you need to forgive other people, so that God will forgive you and bless you in the same way. That's possible. Uh, one commentator pointed out that it says that what the master did was he didn't kill the individual. What the master did is he tortured him until he could pay his debt. Which, of course, in the gospel we can't pay our own debt anyway. But he pointed out that in in a lot of ways, when we don't forgive other people. When we refuse to forgive them, we don't experience all the freedom that grace has for us, and we ourselves become tortured. We torture ourselves because of our unwillingness to forgive others. It becomes a torture to us. It doesn't hurt them near as much as it hurts us. And I think we've all experienced the truth of that. So it's possible that that is what that Jesus is alluding to, that there is this sense of being imprisoned and being tortured when you don't forgive others. It's possible. Um I think it's also possible that that, and this, I would say, because I think it it comes up in other letters from Paul in this way a little bit more. It could be simply making the point that you, without the whole torture thing, it could just be making the point that you don't experience that that if you don't, let me put it the other way, to the degree that you don't understand the grace of God in your life, is the degree to which you choose to forgive. You don't choose to forgive other people. And that when you don't forgive other people, it's not that God stops forgiving you, but you're not recognizing it. You're not seeing the forgiveness of God in your own lives. You're not embracing the gospel for all it's worth. You're not embracing that grace. And so your lack of forgiveness is a sign of that, not something that makes God actually choose not to forgive you. I don't know. And I grant you, it would be it would be nice if Jesus had said this differently, um, just for convenience and comfort. I think it's meaningful that he said it the way he did. I just don't know exactly what it means. But what we do know from the rest of scripture very clearly is that failing to forgive other people is not the unforgivable sin. In other words, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that Jesus says, my grace, my blood covers all sin, except when you hold a grudge. My blood covers all sin, except when you refuse to forgive people. It's clear from the rest of Scripture that is not what Jesus is saying. The blood of Christ will cover everything. Our debt is canceled, and that debt includes our inability to forgive other people's debts. So that that isn't it, that that can't be what he's saying based upon the clear words of other Scripture. So then that's why we just kind of wrestle with, well, what, how does it kind of play here? What is it that he's trying to say? So those are just some of the thoughts I have, that under the— under the covenant, as they understand it, it does kind of make sense. But the gospel itself will will go beyond that. Um, under the, the secondly, that he's just talking about how we'll experience the grace of God. That we will not experience it in its fullness if we don't forgive other people. I think experientially that's true. Whether that's what Jesus meant to say or not, that seems to be true to me. So those are kind of the two main options that that come to my mind. Does anybody have any thoughts on this parable or on this passage or on that statement that Jesus makes at the end that you want to bring in? Yes, Meredith.
1: Well, I was thinking it does kind of remind me a lot of like the Beatitudes and just how in some ways too, I mean, it was a challenge, but it was also kind of like a shock to the system, like the worldly system, like this isn't how it really is. It's like this. And so it kind of made me kind of like think of that, like it's more like this direction and they they haven't gotten it i mean they um well they don't have a holy spirit but they um you know are thinking that they're still kind of like following the pharisees Some, um, and then i mean and we don't all like completely get it even with the holy spirit and stuff like that and um so i mean it's not like they've like totally grasped, you know what the kingdom of heaven is
0: for sure, and yeah. stuff. And, this, and this is placed in extremes to to do some of that. It's it's provocative. It's intentionally provocative. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it seems like, like pretty
1: much right. every time Jesus is talking to like a group like this, it's provocative.
0: Sure, sure, because they're so, actually they're so comfortable well, in their convictions. He wants to shake them up a little bit, I think, and I, I think yeah. in this case. I think the reality is we all are good at justifying our lack of forgiveness. And so whatever Peter's talking about, I, it's the same thing. And I think God is just saying how silly your justification is. It makes no sense at all. That's really the bottom line. Yeah. Any other thoughts? That's good. Meredith. Any other thoughts? Well,
1: well, that actually encourages me too, because I'm apparently easily provoked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good. Anybody else feel provoked? <laughs>
2: With me, it's very uh, it's very hard for me to go one way or the other. If I when I forgive, I want restoration and reconciliation so bad that I kind of throw my good my good judgment out the window. <laughs> and so, uh, so I'll put my not necessarily in the same situation again, but I'll put myself in uh, similar circumstances where I where I trust someone that hasn't proven themselves trustworthy and they get myself hurt in similar ways. And so it's, uh, it's interesting that I've, I've learned in the last several years that, uh, in my case, especially with the individual I'm thinking of, I need to, uh, forgive with boundaries in place where, uh, and the boundaries aren't even, what's interesting about it is the boundaries aren't even necessarily something I'm putting on that person. It's, what I need to remember when I'm having interactions with that person so that I can stay emotionally safe. (laughs) And so, uh, so all that to say is that, uh, that it's really good to wrestle with this uh, section of, of scripture because back four years ago, I used to beat myself up with it thinking that, you know, I, to forgive meant to, to trust. And if I didn't have a trusting relationship with that person, then I wasn't fully forgiving them. But sometimes that's not possible.
0: (laughs) Well, no, and that's good. And, 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 you know, there's nothing in this parable that says the master was going to loan that guy another 10,000 bags of gold. And I think we'd all be surprised if he had, you know, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. And, and I think in, yeah, even the fact that we're supposed to forgive people. And I, I actually even read it this way. This is an argument some people have, but, I even read it that we should forgive people who haven't asked for it and who haven't repented. But if you're forgiving people who haven't repented, that absolutely means you're not going to put yourself in the position where they're going to keep doing what they're doing to you that's wrong. So I agree with you. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean uh, pretending it was okay what they did. In fact, the strength of forgiveness is in recognizing that what they did was absolutely wrong, that it was hurtful to you, that it was destructive to you, and yet you're still going to forgive them for that. One of my favorite examples of forgiveness in Scripture is, is Joseph in the Old Testament, when he is uh, his brothers conspire to kill him, and then instead of killing him, they sell him as slaves, and that's a bad thing. <laughs> there, is, there is no way to read what they did and say, eh, I understand why they did that, and that's terrible. That's awful. That is evil. And at the very end of the story, he says to them very clearly, what you did, you intended for evil. He does not give them an out in their motivation. He doesn't say, it's okay, I know you meant well. No, he says, you didn't mean well, you meant to kill me. And then he says, but God used it for good, and he's he's able to forgive them. But that doesn't mean that he says what they did was okay. And if they were still engaged in doing that, in that story, they are repentant. And and actually, he even tortures them a little bit. If you look at the story carefully, he kind of runs them through the ringer emotionally to see if they're really repentant. You can argue whether he's supposed to do that or not. It's interesting that he does. And when they're repentant, it's it's easier for him to then say, even, you know, God did it for good. So I, I think there's all sorts of situations where, you know, it, it's it's forgiveness is absolutely not saying it's okay. And it's not saying I'm gonna, I'm gonna treat you as if you never did that. It doesn't even mean that. It doesn't mean I'm gonna pretend that that you're you aren't the kind of person that can do this. Well, they are, and they did. And if you are talking about redemption where they've actually changed, that's a whole nother thing. That's also a good thing to believe in. That's not the same as forgiveness, and it may not always be true. So I think you make a good point, Jolene, that forgiveness can't simply be about saying, well, it wasn't that big a deal. In fact, you know, that's one of the things I've tried to learn in my life is there is a difference between saying to somebody, that was no big deal, it's okay. There's a difference between saying that and saying, yeah, that hurt, and I forgive you. Um, and and not that tr- and and the difference is that it did hurt you, but you're trying not to give it back to them. You're trying not to bounce that pain back to them. You know, when the guy forgives ten thousand bags of gold, he's absorbing the cost. That's painful. I don't care how rich he was. That seems painful to me. That's painful, and he's not bouncing that cost back to him. When the when the servant goes out and throws the other guy in jail, he's doing the opposite. He's saying that 100 pieces of silver is painful to me. Maybe it was very painful to him. But he says, I'm going to make you feel the pain that I feel. And I think that's why forgiveness is, in in many senses, one of the most Christ-like things we do. Because it is taking other people's pain upon ourselves without bouncing it back to them. But that does not mean that we have to let them do it to us over and over and over again. I don't say anything about that. Yeah,
2: I think forgiveness does not... Doesn't mean you forget. It's, it's a really serious.
0: good question. And it depends on the context, but to some degree, yes, you're right. Like I said, it doesn't mean you forget in the sense that you're like, well, I guess this guy never did that, so I can trust him. will will do it again. No, you do remember. Yeah. You're like, well, that,
2: yeah. you a little bit of self protection there.
0: Yeah. I think in very specific contexts, that is true. And, and in the context Jolene's talking about, it's very true. Yeah. yeah. It wouldn't be healthy for Jolene to forget all the things that her, ex-husband did for sure yeah
1: well and i mean god's forgiveness i mean doesn't it kind of say like he basically does i don't know if it says he forgets but it's like it's gone
0: no it does say he forgets but but clearly that's not literally true god is aware of everything right i don't think yeah i don't think he actually literally loses any part of his memory at any point but it does say that so there is that's why i'm hedging there is something about about forgetting um and I think again it depends on the context a little bit I can even see there are times where you know we forgive someone over and over and over and there is something loving in sort of forgetting and constantly believing that they can do better but again when they're not repentant and they're hurting you then then that may not be the best approach and that's the case for Jolene I think
1: well, and, it's, and I mean, God like, is so much more has so much more capacity to just like i mean even if it hurts him to to forgive in the first place and to love, then he always has like the right perspective and everything too
0: I think that's the difference we're talking about again they that goes back to the torture and imprisoning yourself if there's somebody who's hurt you and they they aren't hurting you anymore and they can't hurt you anymore. And you continue to hold on to that, and nurse that and 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 it becomes this root of bitterness and grudge in you, then you're the one who's being imprisoned and tortured. And that's where the forget comes in, I think. But so that's the distinction. Are we talking about forgetting who someone is so that they can so they can take advantage of you? Or are we talking about that's not the issue anymore. You're not protecting yourself anymore. You're just you've just become accustomed to that feeling of anger and bitterness and you're nursing that. that's where forgetting really does come into play where you need to be like, no, that's, I need to, I need to move on. I need to let that go for my life. So yeah, that we went, I would say pretty far, pretty far beyond the the scope of this parable. um, But that's totally okay (laughs) because I think forgiveness is a really important point. So I don't mind at all that we, our discussion went a little further. And I think we all did get that the bottom line in this parable is, don't justify a lack of forgiveness justify being smart justify protecting yourself justify maybe forgetting maybe not forgetting but don't justify a lack of forgiveness because even the most heinous things that have been done to us they we can acknowledge they're wrong and we should we can say you know in joseph's case it was it was it was it was uh, fratricide they wanted to kill him it is it is just for him to say that is a wrong thing to do i'm not going to pretend it wasn't Um, So that's okay, and yet, even in that, to remember that God has forgiven, I would put it this way, it's not even just an exhortation to forgive, it's an exhortation to remember how much we've been forgiven. I think that's the better way to put it. This parable is about reminding us how much we've been forgiven, then we will be more likely to forgive. But I don't think it is just about forgive or God won't forgive you. That's where we go off base, if that's how we read this. The bottom line is, don't be stupid remember how much God has forgiven you. And that should, that should affect your interactions with other people. And that's why Jesus says to Peter, don't just forgive seven times, forgive 77 times. So I think that's, I think that's good.
2: Yeah, it seems even going back to, I think you mentioned the Pharisees too. It's even similar there then to the idea of take the plank out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brothers because here this man just has lost perspective completely he's been forgiven this huge huge debt and as soon as he's not worried about that anymore he pounces on someone else so
0: yep yeah well and
1: it kind of i wonder too like the idea of not i mean the perspective issue could be not realizing that god is providing for you so maybe he thought he needed to get that or well i mean that's just a parable Maybe sometimes we think that we need to like get that, you know, because presumably, I mean, all of said and forgiven, but he wasn't probably like rich, and so maybe he thinks, oh, like a hundred silver coins would be great, you know, type thing.
0: I think one of one of the ways that does apply, even in terms of forgiveness, is that we we think we we need the justice of our not forgiving them. We feel like we're somehow enacting a justice and a judgment by not forgiving them. And God would say, leave that to me, right? That's where he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He doesn't say there will be no vengeance. He says, it'll be mine. You don't need to take it. So I think that that's, I, that, that is one way it applies to us. When we don't forgive people, there's part of us where we're thinking they're getting away with something. And I think that what we need to remember is God will take care of it. God will take care of all of that. He's He is a God who is just. He is a God who is merciful if we let him sort it all out. It, it makes the most sense so i think that's that's part of that in there too all right. And i
2: think that can be complicated too because for us because we do also there are rules of a society that for we sure. engage in right and there is we are called to seek justice for other people too so it all sometimes even stopping and seeing if a quest for justice is actually a quest for vengeance
0: it is complicated and i want to say i think also it is important to make distinctions between Remember that as Jesus talks about how individuals should respond in the society in which he lives, very rarely did they have opportunities to translate that into any kind of governmental changes. We we live at a time where where regardless of how effective we think our votes are, we, we have a lot of say in what happens in our communities, and we have a lot of say in what happens in our laws. They didn't have any of that. They have none of that. So when Jesus is talking about forgiveness, it would never even occur to them to translate that into a community governmental question we do because they're so connected it's reasonable that we we ask those questions so that makes it more complicated for us for them they would never have thought this applied to the romans who were ruling the world because the romans will do what the romans will do um and and oh sorry and and the old testament makes that clear too that there is certain responsibilities the king has to engage in justice um but that's see that's different you can forgive someone that's what we talked about you can forgive someone and say it's not right um, David is actually really good at that King David he very often would enact justice against his enemies at the same time he was feeling sympathy and compassion for them it's it's kind of bizarre how good he is at that in fact so he was <laughs> able somehow to see his need to, to enact justice but he didn't he didn't do it personally very often uh, the one time he did it was terrible it was his worst moment when he actually killed someone who didn't deserve to be killed but other than that he's really good at seeing a difference between his his governmental role for justice and his personal role in forgiveness. And I think that's that's relevant as well. They are different. Yes, Meredith.
1: Sorry for interrupting first. Oh, no, no worries. But then I was just, um, I was also thinking too, I mean, because we had talked about that's kind of what he's setting up. So it, it really fits kind of in the context too of like, he's kind of, this is how the Christian community type works. Cause you were saying like, as opposed to like, he, they wouldn't expect that of the Romans and stuff like that.
0: Sure. Yeah, he's definitely giving them, like you said earlier, a lot of the things that are provocative to them are when he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is how it functions. And one of the ways it functions is you don't justify a lack of forgiveness. But but, but the more important point is you remember how much God has forgiven you so that justifying it looks silly. As long as you remember how much God has forgiven you, then, then you'll be more likely to, to not justify a lack of forgiveness. If this story starts with the servant throwing the guy in jail... Well it seems harsh, but it doesn't seem as ridiculous as the way the story actually starts where he's been forgiven first. So I think it all always comes from that you know recognizing what God has done for us, taking that encouraging message of how much God has forgiven us and continues to forgive us and then from there seeing how that plays out in our life with like Lorraine said, perspective. there's a perspective in there. all right let's let's go on to John or yeah John chapter seven, right? Yes. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea. I think this is weird language, and I, I wonder about the translation. He went around in Judea. It just is a weird way to say it, but this is what it means. He he hung out there. He went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So this, this is important. This is going to come up in the next three stories, is in three different Gospels, is that we've come to a place now. Things are coming to a head. And Jesus now knows he's been provocative enough, often enough, and he's been successful enough and popular enough that the crowds are starting to call him the Messiah. Some of them are expecting him to to lead a revolt against the Romans. The Pharisees are not interested in that. Let's be honest. The Pharisees, as much as they believe in a Messiah, this is not good timing for a messiah to overthrow the roman government because the pharisees sit in a position of power thanks to the roman government so it's it's weird position for them they're not really interested even in the real messiah if that's what he's going to do but aside from that they also don't i think they probably literally don't believe that jesus is the messiah because they don't want to believe it so so what we're seeing now is things have come to a head things are moving forward so much That Jesus knows, this is why he started talking about his dying, because he knows it's coming. Because he now knows that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, some of the the council of the Sanhedrin, they want to kill him. They want to get him out of the picture. He's becoming a threat to their power. He's becoming a threat to their orthodoxy, to put it slightly more generously. He's becoming a threat to their way of life. They want to kill him, and he knows that. So now his movements are taking into account they want to kill me. I've come here to die, but we got to get the timing right, whatever that means. But that's how Jesus puts it a few times, that it's not time or it is time. So this is this is why it says he's not going to Judea. It's time. The festivals are beginning. The festival of tabernacles, the Passover. We're starting to get to those festivals, that sequence of festivals that happen at this time of year. We're starting to get there. So it's it would be normal for him to go to Jerusalem, but he's hesitant to do so uh, because they're waiting for him to kill him. And I'll point this out because it'll come up in a little bit too. Last year, last year from this point in the story, Jesus was at the festivals and he said some things that were outrageous enough in terms of him being the Messiah, using the festival to point to himself as the reason for the festival, that they tried to kill him at that time. He tried to heal someone on the Sabbath. They used that as an excuse, but they were really upset with the things he was saying. And they actually tried to kill him then. And that was kind of when he he walked... Through the crowd and just got away, just disappeared. Supernaturally, it kind of sounds like. So that happened last year. So they have reason, again, to be worried about a repeat performance at the same side of situation when all the, the Jews are there. So this is what it says. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus's brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret since you are doing these things show yourself to the world for even his own brothers did not believe in him this is a weird i don't know how to put all this together because what it's telling us is that his brothers are disingenuous it's telling us they're they're flattering him but they don't mean it when they're like oh you're you're great you're the messiah you should go to jerusalem It tells us right at the end they don't believe in him. Maybe they believe he's a public figure. Maybe they believe he could be famous, but they don't believe he's the Messiah. So why are they encouraging him to go? It's unclear. They say all the right things. They say, hey, you should go so the disciples there can see the works you do. Go so your disciples can see you. They want to see you doing these things. They're all gathering in Judea. Go there. Get your leadership. They say this weird thing. Nobody wants to be a public figure. High, acts in secret. Jesus keeps doing that thing where he like does these amazing miracles and says, "Don't tell anyone." It's kind of that his brothers are reacting to. I think when it says they didn't believe in him, I think that's what it is. They're kind of excited that they have a famous brother, and they're kind of pushing him to be a celebrity. But they don't really believe the depth of who he is. They don't believe he is the Messiah, and maybe most significantly they don't believe his concerns that people are trying to kill him. We'll see this later. Jesus is kind of accused of just being paranoid. um, and, And he starts talking about people wanting to kill him. And his brothers may be in that same camp. They may be like, you should just go there. Don't worry about it. No one's trying to kill you. You're not that important. You're not so important people will kill you. Just go be a public figure. Go be a celebrity. I find it least likely of all, but not because i know anything about jesus brothers before their conversion i know who they i know a little bit about them after they believe in him they become pillars of the church but but before that i don't know much about them but it's hard for me to believe they're actually trying to get him killed which would be another way to read this that in fact they want him to go so that the jewish leaders will kill him but i'm i it could be it could be it, scripture doesn't tell us that and i guess i'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're not they're not only disbelieving but actually cruel and like joseph's brothers they actually want to kill him Because of the Joseph story, we have to be open to the possibility that's what's happening. But it doesn't really tell us. But it tells us they try to get him to go, but they don't believe in him. But because he knows their motivations are disingenuous, he doesn't respond to them. He says this Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. I like this because he is saying, You don't believe I'm the Messiah. So you think go to Jerusalem? Don't go to Jerusalem. What's the big deal? Yeah, for you any time will do. You're no big deal. You can go be in Jerusalem. People won't try to kill you. But for me, it's not time yet. When I go, things are going to heat up, and that is exactly what happens. When I go, things are going to heat up, and it's not time for that yet. He says the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Look, he's he's really laying it on to them. He's like, you don't believe me, but here's the truth. I really am the guy that is that is condemning. The the evil works. I'm I'm kind of standing as a representative of God here. He is he is making some big, big-ish claims and 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 saying that you aren't this. So I know I get why you don't understand it, because you think that I'm like you, but I'm not like you, is pretty much what he's saying outright. You go to the festival, he says. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, what we're gonna find out from the other gospels is. He doesn't stay in Galilee for the whole festival. He just wanted to get rid of them, I think, because they were pushing him. He is going to end up going to Jerusalem, but just not right this second. So he stays in Galilee, but really it's a pretty brief uh, pause. And that's where we come to Luke 9, where we have uh, not the same story, but we have sort of the, the continuation of him going to deciding to go to Jerusalem. It says this, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, so point being, he told them it's not time yet, Luke says, when it did become time, which is not apparently much later, because the festival still haven't completed or barely begun. Well, they're halfway over. We'll find that out in a second. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So at first, he's like, no, I'm not going. Then as soon as he is going to go, he's determined to go. You know, he's just waiting for the time, and then he's determined doesn't matter that people are trying to kill him. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. So this is an interesting story, and it shows, again, the fickleness of all people. So this is very possibly the same Samaritan village that he met the Samaritan woman from. The the route would be similar. It doesn't have to be the same village, but it could be. So So whether it is or not, though, it's interesting because he has courted Samaritans in a way that none of the previous false messiahs did he has invited them to be part of who he is. That whole thing with the Samaritan women, where they became to believe he was the Messiah. But what's happening is, as he wants to go through this Samaritan village on the way to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals, is that the Samaritans are now offended. They're bent out of shape because Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the festivals. And remember, part of the arguments of the Samaritans is, you shouldn't worship in Jerusalem. You should worship on this mountain over here near where we are. And Jesus' answer to the woman was, you're both wrong. You know, Ultimately, the worship will be something that you do in your hearts, in spirit and in truth. But he never said that the Jews were wrong and that Jerusalem didn't have a special place for these pilgrimages. It does. It was instituted by God. So I think the Samaritans are kind of feeling this whiplash where they thought he was on their side, but they mistakenly thought that meant he shared their theology. But the fact is, Jesus was on a lot of people's sides whose theology he didn't share. (laughs) He's just that kind of God. So they're like, well, we thought you were on our side, but now you're going to Jerusalem and you want to come through Samaritan? You want to come through our village to go to Jerusalem? That's, That's so bad. We don't like that. You are not welcome anymore. We don't like you. So fickle, given how gracious he's been compared to other messiahs and other Jews in general to the Samaritans. So it says that the people there did not welcome them, welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Sure, that's what you would always consider uh, when someone offends you. This is kind of ridiculous, too. This is them being offended at the Samaritan offense. It's like outrage produces outrage. Everybody's sort of offended about everybody else. And so James and John are like, aha, they won't let us in. Let's call fire down from heaven on them. And of course, Jesus' response is very much what you would expect it to be. Jesus turned and rebuked them. He's like, James and John, you guys, pull it. That's not what we're about. And then he and his disciples went to another village. I love this. Jesus is just like, okay, you want to call fire down from them? I got a better idea. Let's just go through another village. We don't have to go through the Samaritan village. Do not be so offended at these little things that happen. You do not have to respond to every minor offense. And I think that's a good lesson for all of us, honestly. And I, I kind of love the story for that way. Um, any comments on that story before we go on to the next?
1: I just think it's kind of interesting, too, because, like, kind of seems like they're still not getting the power thing that well because, like, how would they call fire anyway, you know? Yeah, and I mean, maybe you know. they could, but like with the authority and then they're like asking Jesus. It's kind of like when Peter's like, well, it's good we're here so we can build these, you know, like tabernacles.
0: I, I think what they're really asking is, will you let us? We, we really have never liked the Samaritans. Will you let us call fire down from heaven now? I mean, they want us to, but they know they can't do it without his power. So in a sense, it's like, oh good, this is our chance. And it does kind of mirror, you know, the, the Jewish leaders are looking for reasons to kill Jesus. Well, James and John were just looking for reasons to wreak havoc on this poor Samaritan village. Um, even, you know, not so different in some ways, unfortunately. Everybody has their own kind of self-righteousness and their their complete comfort with just judging other people about it. So, yeah, it is funny. The whole, the whole comment is so uh, wacky. Um, and it, it is the kind of thing, too, where... Would any single apostle have ever done this? I don't know. But you get two of them together who are brothers, like John and James. And one of them is like, man, we should call fire down. The other one's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And you get that whole encourage each other group thing going. But then, of course, as soon as they go to Jesus, he's like, seriously, guys? No, we'll just go over. <laughs> Not a big deal.
1: Legacy kind of, too. We were are like, see, Jesus? They're not good.
0: No, right. <laughs> totally. That You gave them so much grace, and they didn't receive it, so forget them. You know, we were <laughs> essentially we were right and you were wrong about them all along. Yeah. You could see some of that in there too. All right, so Matthew 8. Is it Matthew 8? Just make sure and write things down wrong. Yes. Okay. Matthew 8:18 8, through 22. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, "Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go." And Jesus replied, "Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is very interesting because I think it does signal the shift in where Jesus is at. We're going to get a few stories here where Jesus seems to be discouraging people from following him. If you read them closely, he's not telling them they can't follow him in any of these cases, but he's trying to be really clear. We have reached a point in my ministry where it is not going to be fun. It is not going to be maybe what you've heard about. It is not going to be sort of this, this great populist movement. We've reached a point where it's going to be tough. And I think he's just being honest with people. So here comes this guy. He's like, I'll follow you anywhere. I think also Jesus knows, kind of know, he knows arts people. I think he kind of knows, eh, this guy won't, doesn't really want to follow me anywhere. He only wants to follow me some places. He just wants to come with me to the festival because that's exciting. And that, you know, he'll be among the in crowd for a moment. And that's why I think Jesus says to him, look, I know you say you want to go where I'm going, but do you understand? I I don't get to rest. I don't, this is it. We're in the final stretch here. I am not resting. And if you come with me, you're going to have less rest than a fox has, because he at least has a hole to go back to. You know, a bird has a nest to go back to. But if you leave your home, you're leaving your home. At this point, it's all, this is it. And this would be true. I mean, even Peter and James, John, and all those guys would be like, yep, we left everything. You know, he's not kidding. This is what it's been. So I don't think he's saying anything that hasn't been true all along, but he's just getting really specific because of where they are in the ministry. By the way, doesn't tell us in this case whether that person does go with them or not, but I think the implication is he does not. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Okay, so that sounds a little bit harsh. Um, It's not exactly the most compassionate sort of statement you can make but there's a couple of things to understand again first of all it's just the same thing he's just like you're you're you want to come with me but you have these other priorities you want to come with me but you want to bury your father first if you really want to come with me we are at a place we are at a moment in the ministry where there isn't time for that but there is another wrinkle to this and i think it's a good i think it's a reasonable thought most commentators do not understand this disciple to be saying my father has died let me go bury him most commentators understand this disciple to be saying, I would like to join you after my father dies and I bury him. Um, and so he's really asking for a longer term delay. And I think Jesus knows by the time you do that, I'll be gone. So so if you're going to come with me, now is the time. And when he says, let the dead bury their own dead, that is a ridiculous statement, except that he's saying that those who do not follow Jesus are dead. They're dead, as Paul says later, in their sins. So. Let, let them take care of them. Right now, we're hitting a crossroads. You want to come with me? Come with me. But you don't have time to wait and then come with me. It's either now. I mean, I don't want to say now or never, because obviously this person could turn to Jesus later. But in the physical following of Jesus, it's either now or never, because Jesus knows his time is coming. He's going to be gone. Um. Luke 9 goes on with another, uh, says same story, says this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, first let me go, Lord, and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And again... All of this is just to say, this is the moment. You just don't have time, right? You don't have time. Come with me or don't come with me. You're, you're, if your if you're if your loyalties are kind of split, you're going to have a really hard time. I need you either with me or not. He's not saying to the person he's bad if he goes back to his family, but he's saying you're making a decision to leave your family. Are you sure you want to go back? I think are you sure you 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 want to just come? Because and I think it's fair to even see that again. This is someone who's with Jesus. I think it's fair to say he's already said goodbye to his family. I think it's fair to to assume this isn't a spur. This isn't just like he came up to Jesus and his family's right behind him and he's like, let me say goodbye. And Jesus is like, nope, nope, can't turn around and say goodbye. I think it's more that he's been following Jesus and he's like, okay, I'm going to go with you anywhere, but I would like to go back to my family several miles back and say goodbye first. And I think that's where Jesus is like, we're not at that point anymore. We're not at that place. You know, if you want to, if you want to stick with me, stick with me, it will be worth it. You will see some amazing things, but, but we're at this place. You go back, it's going to all be over by the time you come back to find me. I just think all of these are very contextual with things are heating up. And Jesus is making some points about, yes, be devoted to me, be all in, be all in. That's what I really want. But I think part of the reason he's pushing that at this point is because they're running out of time. Be all in now, or I'll be dead. And, and when I'm dead, you can choose to be all in, but I won't be here. So if you want to be part of this moment, you got to come now. There isn't time for you to do these other things. So I think that's why he comes off sounding, you know, a little bit harsh is because it's just the nature of the time. It's the moment he's in. Um,
2: what I thought, David, was the fact that yeah, there's no more Jesus Christ superstar <laughs> going on. Times are going to get tough yes and
0: you you need to be understanding this so yep. make your choice i think that's right because the corner turns really fast from jesus is fun exciting popular i mean think about palm sunday which hasn't even happened yet but but right after palm sunday we start moving very quickly towards the crucifixion and i think that's what's happening we're at this moment where there's this there's this buzz there's this sense of he's fun he's popular it's a great place to be we're we're at this great moment but jesus knows what's coming and he doesn't want mm-hmm. anybody following him under false pretenses. He wants to let them know, like you said, yeah, this is a different moment. So if you came here for the party, if you just like he said to the other people, if you came here for the bread, if you came here because of the miracle of the feeding right. of 1000, it's not going to always be like that right now. It's going to get hard. And he's, if you think about it, he's said this to his apostles several times, you know, do you, are you sure you want to keep coming with me? You know, are you going to leave me now? You know, I am going to die. I think he's giving them the same, in a sense, the same outs, but they truly are, as Peter says, there's nowhere else we really want to be. We don't have any better options at this point. We have given all. And he's just kind of saying, this is where they are. It's not a matter of judgment. It's just a matter of reality. Come with me or don't come Mm -hmm. with me but this is what it's going to be like. It's going to get hard. Yeah, I think you're right. So now we're going to come into a bunch of passages in John. And and then the next, I think what happens as we read them is John is showing us sort of the temper of the crowd. He's showing us that this is the moment, that some people in the crowd are super excited about Jesus. They love him. They think what he's doing is great. They want to follow him everywhere like these guys. But then there's this other side of the crowd, which hates him, is looking for an opportunity to kill him. They're looking for any opportunity they can to discredit. And and I think they're even past discredit. They really do want to kill him at this point. And so John begins to tell us some stories which show show this, that the crowd is of two minds because crowd is by nature a, a group, right? So they're not all united here. But the crowd is of two minds and they're going both ways. And Jesus begins to push people. Where are you? Which side are you on? people are taking sides. He begins to say, which side are you on? And and even as we saw in these previous passages, even to kind of gently say to people, I'm not forcing you to take sides. So just know if you do jump on my bandwagon, this is what it's going to look like. And the other thing he does in these stories, as as John is telling these particular stories, John picks stories where Jesus begins to become clearer and clearer and clearer about his authority he begins to become more and more demonstrative about, hey, I'm right and you're wrong. Right. He's kind of been not in a bad way. He's been soft. He's been winning people. He's been, he's been really socratic. He's been really engaging with people. He's gonna still engage with people, but he's gonna become more demonstrative about the fact that look, I'm right and you're wrong. And what are you gonna do about it? <laughs> you know, where where are you gonna stand when all is said and done? And if you end up on the wrong side, it's gonna be not great. And so that's what we see is kind of this building, these two crowds. people are taking sides. And Jesus is forcing the division by being more and more clear about his authority, so that if people don't like who he's saying he is, it's going to be very hard to follow him. Um, and so that's kind of what we're going to see coming up. So we start with John seven verse ten. So this is where, remember, he told the apostle he told his brothers, "I'm not going to go because they're trying to kill me, and you do whatever you want, but I'm not going to go." Then the next gospel told us he started to go resolutely to Jerusalem. Well, John here is going to kind of put those ideas together and explain to us that Jesus decides to go secretly to Jerusalem. He's kind of kind of sneak in. He's not going to go like a big celebrity, like his brothers wanted him to. He's not going to march in with a big crowd around him. He's going to try to sneak in with a small entourage of apostles, I guess, and he's just going to try to, to to go and not make a big deal. But but what we're going to see in John is even with that being his goal, halfway through the festival, he does suddenly decide it's time. And I think that's just how we have to understand it. He's been talking about it's not time yet. Halfway through the festival, he decides it is time and he goes to the temple and he starts teaching and preaching. I mean, he suddenly becomes the celebrity they've been asking him to be, but it really stirs the crowd up in these two directions. So that's what we're going to see. It says, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. So he said, Don't, I'm not going to go. And then he stayed in Galilee, and then he decided to go quietly. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? So Jesus isn't wrong. He said, they're, they're there, they're waiting for me, they're watching for me, they want to kill me. Turns out that's exactly what's happening. He kind of sneaks in, they don't see him at first. So says, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? And among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. I think these are two very reasonable positions, right? Jesus is either really good and he's doing amazing things, or he's the biggest con man these guys have known, and he's really deceiving the people and it's really bad. There isn't a lot of middle ground here, right? There isn't like, oh, he's just a guy. No, he's either really good, he's everything he says he is, or he's really bad. And that's kind of, so that's the crowd. The sides are forming. There's not a lot of room for neutrality. Uh, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So everyone knows what the leaders think, or they're waiting to hear what the leaders think. But I think they probably know. And they and so if they they think he's a good man, they don't want to say that publicly, because even they feel the heat is coming down. Even they feel that things are getting serious. And so there's this hesitation for anybody to come out strongly in any position until we hear from the leaders exactly what they've decided. What is their conclusion? They've been testing him, what do they think? Not until halfway through the festival, Did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach? So he comes in quietly. He's kind of hearing all the whispering in the crowds. He's seeing how things are going. Some point he decides now it's time. He goes to the temple. He begins to teach. This is probably what the Pharisees, the leaders, the Jewish leaders expected him to do from the beginning. And that's where they were watching for him. He knows that. So he's stepping right into their their sights at this point. So he goes to the temple courts to begin to teach and it says the Jews there were amazed and asked how did this man get such learning without having been taught he is so smart he knows so much he's so clear in the scriptures he's so wise and learned and yet we know that he's just a carpenter's son we know that he hasn't had scribal or or pharisaical or or uh rabbinical such as it existed training where did he get all this why is he so so smart. And Jesus answered, "My teaching is not my own. That's interesting. You would almost think he would say the opposite. Well, I'm so smart because I'm God, but he's he's talking about his authority with them and he wants to talk about his even in talking about his authority, he wants to talk about his submission to the Father. So he says this, "My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me." Now, in one sense, this feels like a little step down, right? It's not my own. But in the other sense, this is him saying very clearly I am speaking for God. I am teaching what God would teach. You think I'm learned? Well, that's silly. I'm not learned. I'm just speaking the words of God, which is a big statement to make. It isn't really a step down. It's actually a step up. He's saying, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not just really smart. I didn't just figure all this out myself. I'm actually just telling you what's true. (laughs) I'm telling you what God says. So he says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. If you want to do the will of God, guess what? You're going to find yourself lining up with everything I'm saying, because I am speaking the will of God. It's going to be that simple. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. He says, here's the difference between me and all these Jewish leaders. So here it is. The time is coming. They're pitting themselves against him. This is probably the first, I know he's he's chastised the Pharisees. He's, he's called them to think differently. He's reproved them in front of other people. But this is the first direct uh, sort of uh, opposition to their authority, I think, that he's made as clearly as this, where he's saying to people, look at those guys. They are learned, but they speak only for their own glory. I speak for the glory of God. And that's why, you know, I speak truth, And by the way, by implication, very clear implication, they don't speak truth. He is definitely provoking the sides. There's not, again, not a lot of room for neutrality. He's saying, I speak truth. They don't speak truth. I guess either you agree with me or you agree with them. What's it going to be? And then he says, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. So what he means by this, I think, is that he's saying he's more like Moses in the, at this moment. He's going to say he's better than Moses later. But right now he's saying he's more like Moses than the Pharisees in that Moses only spoke. He, spoke, he, he brought the law from God, which was God's direct words. It wasn't Moses' words. Moses didn't create the law. Moses didn't write sermons about the law. Moses carried the actual tablets handwritten by God himself, carried the actual tablets down from the mountain and shared them with the people. I think that's what Jesus is saying. You you understand what it means when someone actually glorifies God by sharing what he says, because that's what Moses did. Didn't Moses give you the law? And then he says, But you guys don't care about the law. You think that you want to do the will of God, but instead of listening to Moses, you listen to these people who are glorifying themselves. These Pharisees are not speaking to you the law. They're not speaking to you the, 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 the actual words of God. They're speaking what will give them power, what will glorify them. I am more like Moses in that I am speaking directly from God to you. And then he says, flat out, why are you trying to kill me? <laughs> and I don't think he's like, puzzled about it, really. He's saying, if I'm like Moses and I'm speaking just the words of God, what? why are you trying to kill me? What have I actually done that's wrong? What have I said that's wrong? And remember, he's saying all this after it's already been acknowledged that they are amazed with what he's saying. They do hear truth in his words. They do hear that, that that there's something incredible in the way he speaks and teaches. And it's not just charisma and it's not just fancy speaking. It's that it does have this ring of coming from God. And and so that's why he's saying, so why are you trying to kill me? And listen to the response though. It says, you are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? I, I think it, this is an interesting conflation. And again, I think some of it is to see it as a crowd, right? Crowds They seem like they speak as one voice, but they're a mixture of things going on. And I think that there are those in the crowd who believe that all the good things Jesus has done don't come from God. They are demon possession. They've said that before, right? He does his miracles by the power of Beelzebub. And he said, well, that's stupid, because why would Satan throw out his own demons? But, But they're saying, you're demon possessed. You're not from God. That's kind of their argument against his first statement, that I speak for God. They're like, no, you're demon possessed. But I think they're also saying, you're crazy. He's like, people are trying to kill me. And they're like, you're crazy. Now you're just paranoid. Who's trying to kill you? And so I think in the crowd, there are those who are simply saying disingenuously, no one's trying to kill you. And then there are those who are actually unaware, who are like, why would it? I don't think anyone, that's just weird. Like maybe his brothers, you know, no one's trying to kill you, Jesus, relax. Why are you, what's going on here? And Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you were all amazed. I think the best way to understand this is he's talking about last year. This is why I brought up last year. Last year, he healed a man on the Sabbath, and they lost their minds. And I think that's what he's he's referring to. They're like, why would you think anyone would kill you? And he's like, wait a minute. A lot of you were here last year. Do you remember? I did one miracle, one thing, and you called me a demon possessed, and you tried to kill me. So why do I think people are trying to kill me? Because i done a lot more since then, right? He says, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed, yet because moses gave you circumcision though actually it did not come from moses but from the patriarchs you circumcise a boy on the sabbath so now he's he's he said i'm like moses but now he's like okay i healed a guy on the sabbath and you guys lost your mind but you circumcise on the sabbath and that is work now why do you circumcise on the sabbath because moses who claimed to speak for god told you that you should circumcise your children but by the way says jesus you don't even know your scriptures because it isn't Moses who instituted circumcision. It's Abraham. So he's kind of giving them all sorts of lessons all at once in this in this little statement. He says, now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? He's, he's like, come on, you circumcise the boy because it's honoring God, because it's what God asked you to do. How can healing someone's whole body be, be somehow worse? than circumcision. How can that be a bad thing on the Sabbath if the circumcision, which doesn't even heal a boy, is done on the Sabbath? And that's when he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. He's out and out saying, you're just judging by what looks good. It's time to actually start deciding what's right. You guys are just wrong. You're getting it all wrong. And it's time to start thinking about this differently. At that point, as we go on in John 7, 25-36, says at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Okay, notice again, the confusion of crowds, right? Here's the crowd saying, no one's trying to kill you, you're just crazy. And then at the same point, some of the people are like, wait a minute, there's that guy that everybody wants to kill. So, that is reminding us that Jesus is not paranoid, that in fact there are people trying to kill him, and people in the crowd know this to be true. So at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. The way to read this is he's interacting with the crowd, but the Jewish leaders who want to kill him are staying quiet. They're not calling him out. Why? Because the people are still amazed at what he's saying, because they're still... There's still engagement happening. They're afraid. It's not yet a moment where they feel like they can they can turn really strongly against Jesus because there's still too many people in his corner, that the sides have not spit, split in a way which is good for them yet. And so they're hanging back. They're kind of still waiting for their time, so to speak. So it says, here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities concluded that he is the Messiah? This is the problem with them being quiet, though, is that people are like, well, we've been waiting to see what they think, I guess. Maybe they think he's the Messiah because now he's talking about being better than Moses. Now he's talking about speaking directly for God. They're not saying anything to him. They wanted to kill him before. Now they're all quiet. I guess they've been convinced. He convinced them. But the crowd also says, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Okay, this is just classic uh, religious group Nonsense. Because what happens here is first they're like, well, maybe they concluded he is the Messiah. But then they get into this deep, obscure theological arguments, right? And they're like, oh, wait, but we know where he came from. We know literally what town he came from. And I think I read somewhere that the Messiah will come from somewhere mysterious, that none of us will know where he came from. By the way, That doesn't jive. A little later, the crowd is going to say, isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? So again, this is not a theology everyone even understands or is clear on, but it's just, again, they're just trying to wrap their minds around it. They're trying to justify their own position. So for those who don't think he's the Messiah, they're like, Aha, here's the theological reason he can't be the Messiah. He didn't come out of thin air. We know where he came from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. So he he kind of overhears that little thing happening. And he says, you're right. You're right. I am that Jesus. You know me. You know where I come from. He says, but do you really know where I come from? He's kind of answering their theological argument in this way. He says, I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. Meaning, you kind of know where I came from, but I actually came from heaven. And that is very unusual, you got to admit. He says, I am here, I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So now he's accusing those who say he's not the Messiah of not even knowing God. He's claiming that he came directly from God. So now he's not only speaking for God, but now he is saying for those who think the Messiah came mysteriously, he's kind of affirming that. He's saying, I did come mysteriously. You know, I was born in in Bethlehem. You know, I grew up in Jerusalem or Galilee. You know that my name is Jesus, but you know what? I actually came direct from God, and I came from God. And the thing is, you would know that if you knew God, but you don't know God. You don't know God like I know God. I know God because I came from him. He's about to up the ante on that later to say he is God, but he's not there yet. Now he just says, I know God because I came from him. I came from the Father. I know all about him. I know him better than you do. And because of that, now they move. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So now he's, I think even when he was like, it's not my time yet, I think there must have been a moment where in his his, his prayers with the father, there was an understanding that, okay, start moving forward. You won't, you won't, nothing will happen before it's time. You know, you still won't be captured before you're supposed to. So whatever it means here, he ducks, he dodges, he does the whole Aladdin thing and runs. Or they just literally physically can't grab him. Maybe the crowds press in around him, those who like him. We don't know exactly what the nature of it is, but they cannot get him. It says, because his hour had not yet come, still many in the crowd believed in him. That comment may mean that's why they can't get to him, because there are still many in the crowd who do believe in him. They're like, no, this guy makes sense. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? That is one of the more reasonable questions I've heard. Look, Jesus has done so much stuff. We keep asking for signs, but really, if he's not the Messiah... When the Messiah comes, do we possibly expect that there will be someone who will do more? <laughs> this is pretty impressive what he's done. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So some of the crowd tried to grab him. The rest of the crowd didn't let them. The Pharisees are beginning to hear what's going on. They're like, ah, this is getting out of hand. They really, some of them really think he's the Messiah. They're just, they're, we, we've got to get him now. And so they send the temple guards to arrest him. And Jesus said, I'm with you only for a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So he's just talked about coming from God. And so he is telling them, look, there's going to come a moment. It's coming. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to heaven and you won't be able to find me. And you'll look for me then. So this is the choice. This is the moment now. Just like he told all those people, you can go bury your father. You can go back and say goodbye to your family. You can go have a place to rest your head, or you can join me now. Because the time is now. Because after this, I'm going to be gone. I'm just going to be gone. And this is what he's saying to them. You will will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So is he just saying he's going to take a trip, and he's going to expand his mission and ministry elsewhere? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So they're, they're wrestling with it. What is going on? What is he saying to us? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So he begins to preach about the Holy Spirit coming I don't know what they did or didn't understand, but what is interesting is the phrasing, the phrase, the, the the way he's speaking. He's speaking at a very moment when it says on the last and greatest day of the festival, and and my recollection I should have looked this up for the details, but my recollection is that there's a there's a pouring of water that happens on the last day of the festival. They pour the water at the top of the temple steps and it runs down the steps, and it is supposed to be indicative of the apocalyptic ends. John will talk about this in Revelation, where there will be a river that flows through the temple. And it's supposed to be indicative of that, and the Messiah is often referred to as that river. The Messiah is that living water that will flow always forever within the temple. So as they're pouring that water, Jesus is essentially saying, yep, I'm here. That's me. It is as clear a statement of his messianic leadership and his and his messiahship as he has given. He's given some clear ones. This is as clear to them as those. But he's also giving them something to remember later. That's what John means when he says it was for later, because John knows this, later. Later, when they do receive the Holy Spirit, they think back and they're like, oh, that's what the water's about. That's what the living water's been about. That's what all those prophecies about living water were. We're all going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's stop there. We're gonna have the a, a reappearance of a um uh of a of a character we've met before. Um we're gonna see Nicodemus come back, which is great. A lot of people I think forget that Nicodemus actually appears three times in the story, and they're really interesting each time. It's very short this time, but it's also really important. And so, but we'll leave that till next week. So that's it for tonight. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.